you guys are a little younger than I am, I think, but do you know about the whole frosting versus cake debate? Like so frosting? Yeah. Yeah. I would rather so pretty things. I think I'm a frosting. And also wear pretty things. Yeah. Welcome to the Asian Sewist Collective podcast. The Asian Sewist Collective is a group of Asian people from around the world brought together by our shared appreciation for fiber and textile arts and our desire to see more Asian representation in the sewing community. In this podcast, we explore the intersection of our identities and our shared sewing practice as we create a space for Asian sewists and our allies. I'm your co-host, Ada Chen, and I'm recording from Denver, Colorado. Denver is a traditional territory of the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho peoples. I'm a Taiwanese-American marketer turned entrepreneur, and these days you'll find me running my own all-natural skincare business called Chuan Skincare, that's C-H-U-A-N, and sharing my marketing tips on my blog, The Cultivate Method. Most importantly for this podcast, you can find my sewing at i.hope.sew on Instagram. And I'm your co-host, Nicole. I'm based out of Chicago, Illinois, the original homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Ojibwe, the Potawatomi, and the Odawa people. I'm Filipinx American, and I'm a woman, and a lawyer by day, and a sewing enthusiast the rest of the time. You can find me on Instagram at Nicole Angeline Sews. So before we dive into this week's episode, Nicole, can you tell us about your current sewing project? Yeah, I am working on another summery dress, even though by the time this comes out, we will be at the start of fall. And it is the Tabitha Sewer Billy dress, which is a sleeveless dress, which is like a slight A-line, and it comes down to just past the knees with a ruffle at the bottom. I made it last year as a trial, I guess. I think I was just excited to make it because it's really cute. But I ended up taking it in a lot from my measurements. So it's supposed to be super oversized. And for me, I oversized items. I like to bring them in a little bit because I like to include the silhouette of my body in the items. So I haven't cut the fabric yet, but I did take a look at the pattern itself. After like, I taped up this pattern last year and I don't know if you've ever like, how do you store your taped patterns? I've started getting three inch thrifting, three inch binders, like those big ones that you mm. would get for school and then using those, I know they're terrible for the environment, but those plastic cover sheets. So I slip each set of each pattern, basically all the pieces into one and I fold it up and I should get better at labeling the sheets. But so far it's one binder for pants, one binder for like jackets and like kind of like that. Yeah, that's how I started too. I've, I've moved to manila envelopes, but I can't ever really get the Maybe it's just how I tape. So maybe we need to do like a segment on pattern taping. Like, what do we all do? Because I could learn from a few people. But after I tape it, I try to fold it and it's never like neat and nice. So I had to, um, I didn't want to iron it because I know, have you ever like ironed your pattern pieces? Yeah, I also, my tape didn't play well with my iron. <laughs> it was not, it was not good. Okay, so... I, I tried to iron it and then it was a printer paper. Anyway, so I, I had to lay it out for a few days and I was also a bit scared of melting the tape, even though I was going to use like the super lightest because I've done the tissue paper ironing. So anyway, the stage is I am currently, it's ready to go. I took the pattern down a couple of sizes because I'm not a tracer. I like to break the rules a little bit, although that's probably like my worst sewing habit is not tracing. So I cut that down. <laughs> and um, so I'll be cutting the fabric soon, which is actually this fabric here. 
behind nice. the case. It's just like a an unnamed woven, um, but you know, tropical vibes and and summery. Even though it'll be almost October probably by the time this comes out. So got to get mine. that summer sewing in. At the end of summer, that's how I roll. <laughs> what are you working on, Ada? I mean, the same, <laughs> not the same <laughs> pattern. Still summer sewing, even though it is about to get cold here. So I have been on like a tracing kick lately, tracing my own clothing, like ready to wear. And so I made some pajama shorts, which are like the decidedly most unsexy kind of make. But I, I had a half yard, it was about a half yard, yeah, scrap of like t- kind of terry like material that like felt it like it would be a really good kind of sleepwear thing. Mm. And I don't have that many pajama shorts. So I traced some regular old Under Armour running shorts and made some comfy pajama shorts. I made it into an elastic waist without the drawstring because I hate those for sleeping. Like that's just annoying. And I skipped the pockets because I didn't really feel like making extra pieces. And I didn't have to finish the leg opening because they naturally do that like kind of curling up thing. Mm, And it seemed to hold through my pre-wash. So I'm hoping that it'll be fine. Otherwise, like I do on a serger, so it's fine. And I managed to get the, this was the crowning achievement part of finishing these shorts. I managed to get my serger to stay threaded for the entire project, which very nice. it being a 30 year old thrifted serger, sometimes the tension knobs are not very accurate and it probably needs to be recalibrated, blah, 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 all that stuff. It comes unthreaded all the time. It's a pain in the butt. So I got that through and then I put a label on from Intensely Distracted Simone that says mindfully made because it was mindfully made and now I don't have to go get new pajama shorts so I'm excited to wear them around the house and not outside. (laughs) Very cool. Can I ask you a serger related question and um, it's yeah I know you made it sound like it was going to be exciting it's definitely not going to be Well I don't know if I'll know the answer (laughs) maybe our guest will know the answer. (laughs) So I have a serger that I purchased like last fall and it's still one like on the market it's a brother serger. But I hate surging wovens with it because I swear it just doesn't. Maybe it's, I mean, now I'm judging my face. It's probably user error. But for whatever reason, it just doesn't want to stick with me through a project. So yeah, maybe I'll ask Jennifer at the end of our, our interview to see if she can give me some tips. But that it sounds like you surge wovens just fine. Yeah. Maybe it's me. I, my first gut reaction is the tension is always my issue. So maybe it's the tension or... Is it chewing up your woven? It just, it comes unthreaded. Because when you said, like, it it stayed threaded, I was like, I have that problem when I surge wovens and I have no idea why. Yeah, that's what I read online. I was like, I was literally about to resell this thing. (laughs) Like, I can't figure it out and I don't want to spend, I think I spent 80 bucks on this serger. So it was like a really good deal, really good find. But the amount of frustration it has caused me, I was like, I'm going to just check it out the window. And I think it was partially thread quality, like you have to have good quality thread, which I know you have. And then everyone else was like, it's your tension, adjust your tension, it could be too tight, too loose. And so I played with those knobs a little and turned the tension down because I had them all the way up. And I think that actually played better with the new better thread that I put into the machine. Well, I'm going to ask that our listeners provide their thoughts because now when you said you probably have good thread, I'm like, do I? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. But maybe we'll do maybe we'll do a searching Q&A or something. But yeah, listeners, if 
you have any advice for me, I am soliciting the advice this time. So. We are so happy to welcome our guest today, Jennifer from Workroom Social, a sewing studio based in Brooklyn, New York. Our Workroom Social provides sewing classes and events to teach people how to sew clothes that fit their individual styles and their unique body shapes and sizes. So welcome, Jennifer. Hello, thank you for having me. Now, for any listeners tuning in today who are new to you, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Jennifer from Workroom Social, as you said. Um, Based in Brooklyn, I have a sewing studio where I used to host classes year round. We are currently, as of August 2021, still closed due to COVID. And then I also produce two large-scale sewing retreats, Camp Workroom Social. And I am excited to report that this fall, 2021, our fall event is back. So hooray for that. And we also have a spring event that is at the end of April called Wardrobe Week. And I'll go ahead and tease. I'm working on a third sewing retreat for sort of like early summer. So stay tuned for that. Um, But yeah, I really, I'm here to help people sew their own clothes. So as I'm listening to you guys talk about your projects, I just have all the ideas for you. But in addition to classes, I also produce a small line of fashion sewing fabrics, some of which are behind me, and they're all original designs. And currently, they're all 100% rayon. And I have an online class called Sewing Patterns Mastered, where I walk students through how I think about using sewing patterns to create clothes that I actually want to wear. And who knows what'll be next? I don't know. (laughs) And we've talked a little bit about this, but you're also a Taiwanese American. I am. Yay. Hooray. (laughs) Do you mind sharing a bit more about your identity? Yes. So for listeners at home, Nicole and Ada sent me some pre-questions just to kind of say, this is what we're going to talk about. And that was one of the questions. And I am not totally sure how to answer it. And so I thought it would be a fun thing to kind of share that and talk about that. I think... um, And Ada, as also Taiwanese-American, growing up, I grew up in the, primarily in the U.S. My father was in the military, so we actually grew up in the Philippines when I was a small, small child, and then moved about like mid-secondary school, so like around the age of 10, back to the U.S. And I had no concept at that time of like what a country was or what a state (laughs) was or like, (laughs) it was all very confusing to me. And I just remember like coming to the U.S. and having to fill out all these forms like in the new school and stuff like that. And like my dad, who is white, explaining to me how I fill out these forms. And he was always teaching me that I fill them out, that I am Chinese American. So I grew up always saying that I was Chinese American. And then as I got older and I learned about countries. (laughs) Um, And, you know, my mother is from Taiwan. And then I remember asking her, wait, but mom, dad says that I'm Chinese, but you're from Taiwan. So am I Taiwanese? 
And then that she she never really explained it to me. So then starts the sort of education about like nationality versus ethnicity and all of these things that are very complicated. And then for this episode, I actually went and did a little bit of reading and learned about how Taiwanese as a classification of ethnicity was sort of brought into popularity in the 70s, 80s. So all very interesting as far as how I identify or how I move through the world. I have always um, identified as Asian. Now as an adult, I understand that as a mixed American that I am white presenting or I can be white presenting, which was really an interesting thing to grapple with personally because I never, I never realized that or I never identified in that way. And so learning about how you identify yourself can be different than how others identify you was just really fascinating. And, you know, it made me think back to two things. One, it made me think about growing up as a child and how a lot of things, I think, that happened in a public environment as a child are, I think I was always sort of naive and I interpreted things in a way that always centered on how I thought and felt versus how someone else thought and felt about me, which looking back as a child, that was great. So when classmates would call me Chinky Winky, they were not doing it out of love. But for me, because I so strongly identified as Asian and I was oblivious to that, I don't know, people could not like me for the way that I look. I kind of was like, oh, I'm special. You know, thinking back on those things, it's a very interesting thing to think about the way, I don't know, like how your identity plays with like how you feel about yourself and sort of like, oh, it's all just so complicated. And then the second thing that I have started thinking about is how my identity plays a role now as a craft, an owner of a craft-based business where, to me, it feels like many times I am the only or one of the only non-white people in my community and how that has made me feel in different situations and how it has made me respond in different situations, how it's made, how I've been able to perceive whether real or not, um, the way other people interact with me in certain situations, all super interesting. And to say publicly, like all something that I think about every day and grapple with every day. So... When we met in real life, which was fantastic a few weeks ago, we talked a little bit about, we talked a lot actually about all of this and kind of how your relationship with your identity has changed over time. And I thank you for elaborating for our audience because I think for many people listening, they've gone through something similar. 
or maybe are going through something similar. And I guess I'm curious, you know, you brought up being someone who owns a business, runs a business, makes their living off of the sewing and crafting industry. And I'm curious, can you elaborate more on how that comes up being the only person of color in these spaces and maybe how your identity intersects a little bit with your sewing or even with your business? Yeah, I, it's hard to, I mean, I think the most helpful thing would be specific examples, which are difficult to recall in a moment. But I think one of the most interesting things that I have encountered is that because I can be white presenting, I think there are times when the if I am the only non-white person in a circle, I I feel like sometimes people forget that I do not identify as white and that experiences that I have had throughout my life are that of uh, a person of color, specifically Asian. And it has led to several situations where I have had to voice that, like I have had to be vocal about that and explicit about that and explain to people, I I do not operate in the world the same way that they do, which let me tell you, has caused some uncomfortable situations. For me and for them, I'm sure. I, the one thing that I feel is that I always want to leave space for people to grow and to change their minds, including myself. You know, I am learning about all kinds of new things every day, and I do not function in the world in the same way that either of you two do or that some of my other friends do. And so at least in these situations that I've had with groups where I was the only non-white individual, even through that discomfort, I will say 99% of the time, everyone is very gracious. And I hope, I think, learns something and moves forward you know, having changed just a little bit, which is really great. Now, how does my identity intersect with my sewing itself? (laughs) Um, I'm not totally sure. One thing that, and Ada and I talked about this when we met each other, one thing that I've really been so excited to do and have been researching for years, some of my friends on the internet will recall me like sending them one-off messages asking questions about, I have always wanted to make a cheap pao for myself. And my family, my mother's side of the family, they're all still in Taiwan. And we uh, use pre-COVID, we would visit every other year, essentially. And I have some great fabric that I wanted to make a dress out of. I've had it probably in my stash for 10 years, but I've been trying to find like a pattern that I can adapt. But then, you know, I don't know very much about the history of the dress or the specifics of the dress. All I know is that every single one I've ever tried has never fit me. So (laughs) I'm like, I want to make one for myself. 
And so I haven't pulled the trigger on purchasing a pattern because all the patterns that um, have been recommended to me or have not felt right, except that Ada uh, and I talked about a pattern by Porcupine Patterns Porcupine from Singapore. Patterns. So um, I have looked at that and that might be that might be the winner. Yay. It will not be, it has not come out yet, but by the time this episode is out, episode one of season two is all about the history of and like the making of Chi Power, Chung Sum, all of, for all of our Cantonese listeners. So I can't wait for you to listen to that one. I have to listen to that first (laughs) before I start on the project. You could wing it. That's what sewing's about, right? Just making changes as you go. I got to make my mom proud, though, so I got to do a little research ahead of time. I was going to say that being the only person of color, even though you are white presenting in spaces, I guess I've never had that personal experience, but I've had the experience of being the only person of color around white people and specifically like being East Asian. Listeners can't see I'm like gesturing at my face, but being East Asian sometimes because of the way that the model minority myth is used and how white supremacy works, the adjacency of East Asianness in particular is something that I have experienced. And so certain white friends or white colleagues or, you know, white people would just assume that I would have the same viewpoint and I would just be like, uh, no, this is really awkward and really weird because I'm not even anywhere like on the spectrum of melanated close to where I feel like if I had been any more melanated, you wouldn't have said that, but I'm here and now you're saying that and that like, it's always awkward and uncomfortable. And I feel like you then kind of feel like the, the duty to say something, but also like, why is this happening to me a lot of the time? I feel that a lot and I am not someone who in any way enjoys or goes into situations of conflicts willingly. And there have been many times where I have felt like I'm like looking around, I'm like, is someone going to do something? And then I'm like, no, that means I need to do something. Oh, God, this is so stressful. Okay. Here I go. I'm doing the thing. Yeah. Why me? I'm not equipped for this. This, but yeah, I, I can certainly empathize with being the only person in the room and then being like, ah. It's been a while since it's that's. I mean, I guess at least it's the pandemic because I'm usually the only person in the room anyway. But like, I grew up in a, in a similar situation where in the suburbs of Chicago. And I had a lot of, I did have a lot of Filipino friends, but, and maybe Ada, you and I have talked about this, where it felt, I remember growing up feeling like everyone wants to talk about being Filipino. I just want to be American. I don't want to talk, you know, like I just want that experience. Like, I guess you could say that I just wanted to have that white American experience. And it's, you know, I love my friends, but I also felt like when everyone would be like, yeah, Filipino pride, I'd be like, ah, you know, that's so embarrassing. Now I'm like, yes, take me everywhere. Like I've got some catching up to do to learn about myself. And I felt like I also went to college and law school in predominantly white areas. And I think that I was only, so first of all, I was exotic and that was a thing, but 
I, my val, like my experiences as a Filipino American person weren't, they didn't matter until it was to point out that I was different. And I feel like, you know, as, as, as listening to the both of you speak, it's, it's like, I don't get to bring my experiences. I only get to bring my food and my dance. And, you know, like I, they don't just those, those items from my culture that are obviously different from whatever white American culture is, you know, and, and that, you know, looking back on it, it was frustrating. And it, and to your point, Jennifer, about, I don't want to have to be the one to have to say this, like, like, like it's exhausting to be the person to have to fight for validity just as a whole human being in a room full of usually white people. And so as an adult now, I'm just like, I I don't have energy for this. And it's unfortunate because I think that I do want to change. I would love to change hearts and minds, but it's difficult to balance, you know, the frustration with the energy expenditure for doing that, you know, and saving some for me. And, and you know, so do I have the gentle but firm and certainly awkward conversation? Or do I just say, I can't? I can't, I'm out of here. I'm going to go somewhere where I can be a whole person without being, without having to be tokenized in any way. I don't know. That is super stressful. Well, it just makes me think about, this has nothing, I mean, it all has to do with sewing because our lives intersect in many complicated ways. However, specifically, I've done a lot of travel in my life. I'm lucky that I have been able to. And the one thing that I really feel as an adult is that at the end of the day, I am so American. And so when you talk about like you just wanted that American experience, I actually had the opposite. Like my mom really wanted us to be American. She wanted us to not, um, she wanted us to fit in. So there's like a culture of parents. I'm a little older than you guys, but there's a culture of uh, immigrant parents, I think, that just wanted their children to fit in. So we did not grow up learning anything about our culture or heritage or anything. No language, no holidays, no customs, no nothing. So I, I, I feel that. I feel the like I wish that I had that. But the thing that I feel is that I am so American. We are also American. Like you could not dump me anywhere else and I would fit in. Impossible. Like I am American. And so the, you know, it's just so stressful to, to feel like this is my home. This is where I belong. This is my whatever we have this is my country family or like what however we call that and why do some people not like me or not think that I am one of you like it feels very (laughs) very confusing why do you have to prove that you are you belong here when you clearly do like I mean I I, yeah I understand so that's what I thought about when you were talking about that like you just wanted the you know You shouldn't have to prove yourself. That's my, when people tell me, go back to where you came from, which still happens today. I just go, okay, so like to New Jersey, because (laughs) you know, New Jersey gets kind of a bad rep across all 50 states and DC and Puerto Rico anyway. So yeah, I don't think that's what you, like, I'll usually just be like, so that's like really what you meant. Hmm." 
and it'll just make the awkward situation even more awkward. <laughs> but I agree. It's I think especially traveling outside of the US and Canada, even Mexico, like North America, like all the times I've been to continental Europe, if I go shopping or to a restaurant, they're like it's probably gotten better in the last few years, but I remember distinctly it being like an issue of your face looks like this, so we expect you to act like this and sound like this. And I'm like, I mean, I can use Chinese. I don't think you can use it back with me. So it'd just be a fruitless conversation. Like, let's just use English. And getting very confused looks a lot of the time. And it's interesting, I think, just to think about how that continues to evolve and how the experience continues to evolve. Obviously, no one is really traveling right now. And I kind of wonder, like, what will that experience be like after or whenever it is okay (laughs) to kind of do that again? I have a question for Ada, and maybe we can cut this out because I don't want to take the focus off you, Jennifer, but maybe it's like a good conversation. So I've been speaking to some people about and listening to a podcast called Asian Enough from the LA Times. And... Uh, A guest had, I think it was Dante Bosco, the Filipino-American actor, said that when you go to San Francisco or the Bay Area or Hawaii, that you don't feel, it's like the few places in America where you don't feel out of place as an Asian person. Where like, I spoke to somebody, you know, and she had said, your Asian-ness isn't questioned in these places. You're, like Jennifer said, you can't drop me in the Philippines and, and expect people to believe that I'm from there, even if I spoke the language perfectly. Like, it's just not what happened. So I don't know, Aid. I know you're, you've lived in the, you lived in the Bay Area for a while. Do you feel like that was your, I felt like that when I visited for the first time. I was like, wow, like, this is cool. Like, I feel like me being Filipino, it, like, it doesn't matter in the way that it makes me stick out and like makes people do a double take to wonder if I actually belong in this space. Did you feel like that in, in the Bay Area? I don't know. I guess kind of, but I would say that my experience was more formed even earlier than that. Like I grew up in central New Jersey in a time when white flight was taking place. So the town that I grew up in, Edison, is very well known in Asian circles now for being one of the highest concentrations of Indian population outside of India and like in the world, and not even just in New Jersey or the States. Like if you talk to anybody, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I, I know somebody from there. Like, I know, like, this is where we go to shop. Um, there is a heavy East Asian presence there, too. And growing up, I remember I went to public school for kindergarten, and it was me and a family friend who was also Taiwanese-American and a whole class of, like, white Jewish kids. And by the time I got to, like, fifth grade, we started having, like, I remember some of my friends were Korean-American or Chinese-American. And then when we got to middle and high school, you really started to see a pronounced change because like Edison used to be home to a Ford motor plant and then it shut down or or got downsized or something like that. And the town itself became very segregated, like not that they were actively trying to do anything, but white flight was happening and a bunch of immigrant parents were trying to look for the best high school in New Jersey or whatever. And so they were moving all specifically to our neighborhood And so by the time I got to high school, when I was a freshman, my entire class in English in ninth grade was taught by this 
little old white lady, Mrs. Ferrari, and there were like 35 of us, and there's one white kid, Alex, and everybody else was East or South Asian. And so you didn't know, like, I functioned in that world for the first 14 years of my life, not knowing. And for a certain amount of time, I was actually not in that school system. I was in a charter school in a different town with predominantly Black and Hispanic kids. So, you know, you're as a kid, you don't really know. But then I remember thinking back to that class being like, huh, this is like an interesting English class because they would level it out, which is like another form of segregation in our public schools and classism and and privilege and all this stuff. And so I remember not realizing that I was not Asian, like, I guess not realizing that I was like not white or that like the Asian experience in America was different and the immigrant experience was different until... I moved after that summer and we moved to Princeton, which is a very white, very liberal university town. You may have heard of it. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of ivy everywhere, tigers, and I cannot make this up. They have tour buses, like Chinese language tour buses. I'm sure there's other Asian language tour buses that drop people off in town. And the Mm -hmm. town itself is very small and walkable and very cute like think Gilmore Girls like that level of like cutesy east coast and getting to the public school there where it was like 80% white and like 10% Asian so in a class of 300 200 people you knew all the other Asians because you like you'd be like I know you I know you I know you oh you're somebody's yeah. yeah and so I think having that experience really young made me very aware so that by the time I got to San Francisco a decade later I was like looking around like uh (laughs) where am I again but I will say also like the school situations and settings that I was in in undergrad again going to two schools I was part of all of the Asian American orgs and and cultural orgs so I was very much surrounded I chose to be surrounded I think after that culture reverse culture shock by people who looked like me who could share similar experiences with me Mm -hmm. And so that kind of like, I can't even make this up. My undergrad graduating class within the business school at my university, there were probably six or 700 kids and it was like 80% Asian and not just Asian American, like Asian from Asia, first generation or 1.5 arriving here for college. Yeah. And so like our graduation, oh man, the uh, professors who had to pronounce all the names, it was, (laughs) you know, they got the card and they'd be like, I don't know how to say this. And it was like wild, I think, thinking that this is the whole class of people that they were training primarily to go into finance and accounting. But it was like predominantly Asian and they claimed to use a race blind admissions process. And I don't, I to this day, I can't tell you, I don't know. But it was very interesting to constantly be in these situations and then not. And so it's like, back and forth and always always um what's the term for it context switching code switching code, code switching. switching code switching always code switching yeah, yeah. my okay. life is code switching especially now especially here maybe well yeah i think i had the opposite experience where i just grew up in in like i said predominantly white suburbs of chicago and then we all stuck together you know and and so, for, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing your experience. I, yeah, I think we could talk a lot about this and I think maybe we we can in the future, but I just, it was a thought that popped into my head, but I do want to turn back to Jennifer. So Jennifer, tell us a little bit about 
your sewing journey in general? Like where, when did you start sewing and why? And then what do you like to sew for yourself? I learned how to sew in high school in an independent study class. So cool. I don't have like a very defined origin story. Everyone loves the origin story. I just remember that I had a male friend, his mother sewed. So the only thing I can think is that's where I was introduced to it. She made me a few um, things, including a homecoming dress one year. And so I was in this independent study class. The best I can surmise is that I was introduced to the concept. I thought it was cool. And in the independent study, I had to pick something. So um, I picked sewing. And my the teacher who led that class, she actually got me a sewing machine, borrowed it from a friend or something. So that was the first sewing machine that I learned on and then eventually convinced my mother to buy me a sewing machine from Sears. So American. And <laughs> so that was my start. I started learning how to sew by making sewing patterns. So uh, McCall's Butterick Simplicity. And I did not, you know, I tried to follow directions, but I didn't know anything. And those patterns, they don't teach you. They do walk you step by step through like how to do things, but they don't say like press after every thing. (laughs) They assume you know that, which I didn't know. So like it's hilarious looking back at some of my old things. They're all bubbly because I didn't (laughs) know that like ironing is – just as important as the actual stitching (laughs) itself. You know, it's just like wacky. And then also nothing fit me because one, I didn't know how to, I was guessing on sizing. I didn't know how to read size charts and all that. And then I had no idea about alterations. And so nothing fit. So I gave up and I transitioned to quilting. So I did a lot of quilting in high school. And then I don't know, at some point, Back in college or after, I picked up sewing again, um, clothes, and then I really was like, I got to figure out this clothes thing, like, in in an organized way. So when I was still working in an office, I started taking classes at the Fashion Institute of Technology here in New York City, just for fun. And that was sort of, I think, where I made, like, bigger, you know, leaps into making clothes that look nice and could fit me and all of that. So, and then at some point I left an office job and then decided to start teaching sewing and some other things. And what I really discovered was that, listen, I'm biased. It's me. (laughs) I love myself. I think I'm a great teacher. Am I like (laughs) the number one best seamstress or sewer or sewist or whatever you want to call me? Am I the number one best in the world? No, (laughs) but I'm a really good teacher. And so that's what I identified pretty early on in my, in the journey of Workroom Social was that my strength is my ability to connect with people, my ability to teach others and my ability to produce events. And so that's why Workroom Social really is about the classes and the events but what I like to sew for myself, mostly dresses, um, just because I think that they are easy to wear. I don't love coordinating. So if I have to match <laughs> a top with a bottom, I get a little overwhelmed. Um, 
<laughs> and I have, I keep looking over here to the side. I actually have my wedding dress that I made in a crumpled heap <laughs> on a bunch of fabric that I'm like, oh yeah, I made that. That's cool. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mostly sew dresses, I think. But uh, to be honest, I don't, I haven't sewn a lot for myself and over the course of the pandemic and also I don't really sew very much for myself in general because I sew a lot of sample like classroom samples samples for um fittings and things like that so I always say every year my new year's resolution is to sew more for myself and then I never do (laughs) that's okay I've come to terms with it now and rewinding a little bit prior to workroom social, what was your office job and like what was your background in? So I used to work in film marketing. I was a publicist essentially. So that I think is where a lot of my practical knowledge of event production comes from. Yeah, it was I liked doing it because I liked I like working on big teams and seeing like how everyone comes together to produce like this thing. But my personality and the personalities of everyone else did not go well together for my own mental, um, just tough, tough, stressful work for something that I think is really should be about fun and creativity. And, but at the end of the day, it's not, it's about money. So, you know. (laughs) So now that you get autonomy over what programming you get to do with workroom social, what's the best, (laughs) what kinds of programming do you include? I think you mentioned some of it at the beginning, but for our listeners who are interested in up leveling their skills or even getting started with sewing, like what can they expect to find from you? So at Workroom Social, we only owe class, we only offer, I don't know why I said owe, we only offer classes in fashion sewing. So very specifically, it's only about sewing clothing. Within that realm, we do project-based classes. So like learn how to make a pair of jeans, learn how to make a dress, learn how to make a button-up shirt. And then we also have some skills-based classes. I teach one that I really like called Advanced Sewing Techniques. So that one, you don't make a garment, but you learn all the techniques to make different garments. And you um, make samples. So then you have these samples that you can keep and refer back on. So like you will learn, you know, in the button-up shirt making class, you will obviously learn all the skills you need to make a button-up shirt by making a button-up shirt. In the advanced sewing techniques class, you learn similar skills. You learn how to install a cuff, how to sew a button band, how to sew a shirt neck collar, stand and collar, but you don't actually construct a shirt. You do all of these things on samples. And so I personally enjoy that a lot because it feels like a lot less pressure than to have. I mean, it's, I always say this to students like, you're making a button-up shirt. It's the first button-up shirt you've ever made in your entire life. It's unreasonable to think that this is going to be like stellar, right? Like we're going for a B minus, <laughs> not like an A plus. Yeah. However, it's really, really hard <laughs> to, to convince people to feel that energy. They hold on to the energy of wanting the A plus. So the samples, I think, you know, 
kicks it down, kicks the stress level down. But we also offer fitting classes. So where you learn how to fit clothes, how to alter clothes, where you're not necessarily constructing, you're not necessarily, yeah, constructing the garment. You're learning how to do the fittings. And I think perhaps that is it. I can't think of anything else right at the moment. (laughs) Um, And I am personally interested in process and organization because I think that makes for a more enjoyable and productive experience. And by productive, I just mean that you go through a process and you complete it. How many times have you started something and you didn't finish it? Um, which is totally fine too if Nicole's you're okay right with now. that. Like, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Me too. And I mean, if you're fine with it, I think that's totally fine. Do, you know, you do you, whatever makes you happy. But for people who would like to finish more things, I'm very interested in how how can we inject a little bit of process into this hobby of ours so that we can actually complete things more. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be your favorite thing in the whole world, but it is nice to have like a thing you finish. I feel like I would be one of those students where you would have to convince me that like, it's okay that it's not an A+. And I think that's why I have a lot of unfinished things because I get dissatisfied with how I'm working. Not a lot. I've heard a lot, but for me, it's like a few. Um, I get frustrated or dissatisfied and then I put it aside. So it sounds like, you know, your model focusing on the process as opposed to and the process and the gaining of skills as opposed to like a pretty finished product necessarily. That sounds like it would work really well for me. So. Well, and like mindset shift instead of getting dissatisfied or frustrated midway through a project that's not going well, you have to change your mindset and say, imagine if I finish this and imagine if I make another one and another one, gosh, by the fifth one, the fifth one is going to be an A plus. And I'm not going to get to the fifth if I don't finish one through four. Right. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. I, I, and I am, I am garbage at mindset, mind, mindset shifting. Like that's something I have to, or like for everything. I'm like, yeah, I get stuck. Me you know? too. Me too. <laughs> So just shifting a little bit, we talked about, you mentioned earlier your fabric. And this was a surprise to me, like when I went to go check out your website, I was like, <laughs> oh, I like fabric, right? Um, so you said they're they're 100% rayon and they're all original designs. And I wanted to ask, do you design the fabric? Good question. The answer is no. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I actually first started being self-employed when I left my office job, I did go through a phase where I was like, I'm going to design fabric and I'm going to screen print it myself. This is going to be amazing. That was not a workable idea for me personally. Um, I'm just not a very talented at this stage artist, which I truly believe that if I wanted to be, I could learn and practice to be, but I don't care that much. So I'm not investing my time in that arena. So no, I do not design them. They are designed by people like <laughs> us. Um, yeah, really, I huh, I have to say, team, I am – so this is my full-time business, and this is how I make a living, and I do make a living. What I am not is rich, and what I am not is a 
hustling, go-getting super grower. So I am not, I am interested in being able to support myself on my own terms, but I just don't have a drive that I think our, at least our American culture has been very aggressive in communicating to women in the last however many years, which is like, you need to have a side hustle. You need to not sleep. You need to like be doing all these things, blah, blah, blah. I will take a nap, spend time with my husband, go hang out with my friends before I put in extra hours of work any day. Yeah. So with all of that in mind, I am here. Part of what I want to do is help other people who are interested in doing those same things who might not have the opportunity to because of gatekeepers. So the fabrics right now are just designed by people I know who wanted to do a project. And I said, cool, like you have some abilities. Let's work together. I'll pretend I'm an art director um, <laughs> and I'll help you get there and I will pay you. Um, I don't know how other people like I assume if you're if you have a contract with like art gallery or something, you know, I don't know. I assume that you're licensing. So I don't license. I pay outright for the art, which is, you know, it's like a compromise. Like if you're willing to compromise with me, I'm willing to compromise with you and let's make something together. So the so far I have three collections. Two are made by a weaver actually, who was interested in fabric design. She's based here in Brooklyn, and her name is Whitney Crutchfield. And then one collection is designed by Kelly Ward, actually, who owns True Bias. And she is someone else who was just like interested in fabric design and wanted to make a collection you know, but didn't want to go through the whole thing of trying to pitch a big company and all of that. So I'm working with two other artists right now. Um, one who is an illustrator who has no um, back, uh, I mean, no official background in, you know, this kind of stuff. And then one art school student who like paints and, and things, but is also not an artist in any kind of official capacity. And I welcome anyone listening. If you are have some skills and are interested in doing something, reach out to me. I would love to do more. I mean, I haven't produced a new collection like manufactured in a couple of years, again, because I'm not hustling like a maniac. So, um, but I love working with people. And even if you just have one design you want to do, that's fine too. So all of that long-windedness to say, no, I don't design <laughs> any of the art. I've, yeah, I've, I, I think maybe about six months ago, I was like, I'm going to design something and like throw it up on a website where you can, you can get it printed, you know? But, uh, so when I saw that you were working with other artists. I thought that was really neat. I love the moon phases one. I've been trying to figure out, like, I, I just like the, like, I 
idea, or I guess it's not an idea, it's a real thing. Moon phases are a thing. I just like imagery and art based on moon phases. So I saw that and I was like, wow, this is really neat. But Make yeah. Make another dress. Make another dress. Yeah. Me? Yeah. Yeah, I know. I'll have a look. I like it. I like I like what I see. <laughs> Nicole, what if we make a deal? I'll oh, send you the fabric if you sew it, but you have to finish it. I can well, probably do that. Yeah. She could definitely do that. <laughs> you give me a deadline and I'll make, make it. If you let me loose on my own, I'll be like, I don't know what I'm going to do. What do I do now? Can I just throw this out there? This is stereotypical but I feel it to my bones is that like an Asian thing if you give me a deadline I am on it I don't know if I'm imagining my mother screaming at me for being late (laughs) or like what I think for me it's um it's having structure it's like how how rigid and and yeah uh like my upbringing was I actually grew up with my grandparents in the household my mom worked nights my dad worked days so it was like it was my grandparents and they, I like to think that they were. This is probably why our experiences were maybe our experiences were different because I was raised like you are Filipino. Like I went to the church every Sunday, and then like novenas with a lot of really old Filipino people, like with my grandparents, and like I would lead prayer and we would do cultural dances. I think if it was my mom, you know, like just my parents, it would have been different. But she like so, but it was very rigid to the point, or probably actual authoritarianism, like in the house. So for me, I'm like, if I have a deadline. Like that helps me order myself better. But if I'm, if I, I don't do well with loose free thinking creativity, which I admire and love and would love to aspire to, but it's harder for me to operate that way. I feel that. The interesting thing that happened a few days after I met up with you, Jennifer, was that it was the day after this wedding that I had gone to and we were debriefing with the bride and groom and matron of honor and they both the bride and matron of honor are high school friends with my partner and they were all saying like did you know we've been going through life going at 100 percent, putting ourselves through all this stuff for so long and trying to get the highest sat scores ap scores blah 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 college grad school working getting married and having children and everybody else like we could have been coasting at like 50 percent and having all this time and breathing a little bit and having a life and being able to be more creative and nobody would have like nothing would have gone wrong (laughs) I also feel that yeah like I think it might actually feel like I don't know if it was like an Asian thing or like an immigrant parent thing or maybe both but yeah deadlines deadlines are my friend (laughs) I'm a panic sewer too. <laughs> if I You've said that, yeah. If I know I have like I made shorts so I could wear them for an event that I was doing, I'm a panic sewer. Or, you know, this dress, not the wedding that I just went to, but like a while b- before, panic sewed that dress. Like <laughs> give me a deadline and I will hit it, which is why I'm very I don't think I can panic sew as well as Nicole because you managed to be like I have to finish this and then photograph it. I'm like I have to finish it and then I'm going to photograph it like the morning I need to send this out or something. That's been me recently. Yeah, that's been like, oh, it's due today. Well, we're going to go take pictures today. I can, yeah, I can deal with it. If I'm given enough advance notice, I think I'm good at planning for like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm a panic sewer. I think I'm more like if I have the deadline, then I can structure myself, my time better. I think if I were, pa- if I were in panic sewing mode, I would just drop it. I'd be like, I'm not into this. Like, I'm like, <laughs> 
I'll wear something I already own. Like, I don't think I, I don't think I'd do, I'd have the opposite reaction. I'd shut down. <laughs> I'd be like, no, we're not doing this. <laughs> but yeah, Take- that's, that's some good insight. Taking a hard left. Um, Jennifer is wearing a camp workroom social t-shirt today. <laughs> Love it. So let's talk about camp because that is one of the biggest things that you do. And so for anyone who isn't familiar with it, can you describe what it is? Camp Workroom Social is sleepaway camp for grownups who like sewing and do sewing. I think that's what it is. And where did the idea for camp come from? Like was going to camp something that you did when you were growing up? Yes, I'm a real life summer camp counselor. (laughs) I think it's funny because I think if you meet me, well, Ada can say she met me in real life. I think that I will always have that energy. I don't know why. But summer camp, when I was a child attending, was a huge influence, I think, on my life. Everything from like my independence. Um, I'm very independent. My love of travel, my sort of like self-sufficiency my um a lot of my social skills i think probably like having to make friends with new people every week and then you know becoming a counselor when i was older it really helped me learn how to be organized how to communicate things how to get a sense of people's emotions when you're in a group it has Help me practice how to learn people's names, <laughs> all kinds, how to adapt, how to make people feel welcome and comfortable and yeah. um, have a have a less uh, have less discomfort with changing your mind. I think especially Americans have a real issue with like I can't be wrong I can't do something wrong and changing your mind I think is a way can be an indication that like oh I said this before like I have to stick to that for whatever I feel like being a summer camp counselor taught me like it's okay to you know so anyways love summer camp advocate for all the parents out there send your kids to a summer camp that you research and think is safe and all of that. And camp workroom social just came as an idea because when I very first started the studio, I didn't have a physical space. So I'm in the physical studio space right now. And this is actually the third location that I have had. And um, before all of that, I wanted to produce my own events, but without a physical space, I kind of went to the conference model. So rent a space and have everyone bring stuff in and all of that. So I originally was like, okay, if I could plan like an event in a less expensive city compared to New York and have 12 people in a dressmaking class, you know, um, that could that could really work, you know, for an event. And so I recruited some friends to like help me do planning in other cities. And I just remember one of them um, thought that it was really, she just didn't believe in my idea. She didn't think that my price point, what I was offering, like the event, you know, she just didn't think it could work. 
And so I let it go. I was like, oh, well, maybe she's right. So I just kind of like died. And then between then and when camp, when I was like, oh, I'm going to do camp, I, I was able to like get a space. I was hosting real classes and stuff like that. So then now I'm back to the retreat idea. Like, okay, I, I've done these classes. Now I want to go back to the retreat. And my husband and I actually got married at the summer camp that Camp Workroom Social happens in in New York. And so I don't know how the thought came into my mind, but at some point I was just like, let me just call them because I'm sure (laughs) they remember me because when we got married, I was very much, you know, like you have a wedding at a venue, you basically transform the venue, no matter where it is, into your wedding. But for me, when we got married, I was like, no, no, I don't want to transform this into anything we're getting married at the camp. Like the camp is not going to turn into my wedding. And so the staff there all remembered me because I was doing things like running around. Oh my gosh. At my wedding, I did bunk checks. This was something that (laughs) counselors did at my camp growing up. So I had a friend who came to the wedding who we were counselors together. I was like, let's go do bunk checks. So we went around to people's rooms (laughs) to see how clean they were while they were out doing activities. Anyways, the staff there remembered me because what kind of weirdo, (laughs) you know, who's getting married is like doing these things. So when I call them and said, hey, remember me? Like I got married there two years ago. Um, I have this idea. I would like to you know, rent out space to do like a sewing conference thing. And um, they were just like, yeah, sure. (laughs) So that's sort of like how it started, really. And I remember the first year I did it, I sold the admission or tickets or whatever. Like I sold it before I even signed the contracts for the event because I was so nervous that no one would want to come that I was like, okay, well, if 10 people come, I'll just refund them. Like, but I wouldn't have signed the contracts for the venue. So then I wouldn't have to, you know, pay anything. I was so worried that I was going to have to like pay these bills, but not have an event. Oh, little did you know. That was seven, seven years ago. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm glad that people are, you know, very, um, very, I'm glad that people see my vision and like my vision for sewing camp. So camp wasn't, um, I guess, available. Like it wasn't a thing. And maybe, again, it's maybe it's my parents. My mom was very like, you can't stay over at another person's house. Like you can't sleep over at other places. And I'm totally intrigued by this, by your camp. So where uh, are most camp attendees traveling from? And, I, and I'm asking because can someone from Chicago easily travel and attend? Easily is relative, I know. but Yes, I'm not sure about most. We have attendees from the entire United States, cool. including Chicago. And people from lots of people from the West Coast, Pacific Northwest, California. I would say probably not a huge representation from the Southeast. We have a couple, but I don't think that's like a huge. um, Anyways, you can come from any 
anywhere. One of the benefits, I think, of attending this is you fly in and out of New York City. So being that we have three major airport options, you know, it's very doable. We do have at least one person that I can think of, perhaps more, fly into Albany, New York, which is north a bit, and then rents a car and drives directly there. But for anyone who's flying into New York City and then needs to get from New York City into the middle of nowhere, which is where the event <laughs> is, mm-hmm. um, I uh, charter a shuttle bus. So we bus everyone there. Um, we have a lot of Canadians who come, although not this year because of COVID. And I have had visitors from the UK and Australia. Wow. That's cool. That's dedication. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, it's all, you just have to get yourself to and from New York City. Other than that, it's all inclusive. And you can arrive the day it happens and fly out the day it ends, although a lot of people book extra days on either end so that they can, you know, go to Mood and do some other New York City (laughs) things too. And by the time this episode airs, we will be one week away from camp. Oh, my gosh. Camp. Oh, my gosh. I will be – I will not be sleeping very much by then. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, obviously, registration has already closed for that. But can you tell us when the next camp and camp-like events will be for folks who hear this episode and are really excited and want to sign up? So wardrobe – Camp Workroom Social Wardrobe Week happens in the spring and – Probably the registration will be closed for that as well by the time this airs. Um, I try to do registration almost a year in advance. Due to COVID, the schedule's a little messed up, so hard to say. Um, The event that I am planning, hopefully to launch summer 2022, registration might have happened. It might not have. So definitely, I would say if you're interested, visit campworkroomsocial.com for information. But registration for fall camp 2022, so that's in one year from now, in an ideal world, that registration opens in February. So you can definitely have the opportunity to go to that then. Um, I will say it is... it. It can feel competitive to get in, and that is only because, as I mentioned earlier, I don't – I value my free time and just the general health and well-being of myself and my family more than I value, like, growing this company bigger, faster, whatever. So the event really – is not getting any larger than it is. And so because of limited supply, you know, it can feel a little stressful to get in. So um, I do do a lottery ticketing situation so that there's no like rush to register at a certain time or anything like that. Um, But, you know, as it feels right, I am hoping to do more events just because I love them and the new event that I'm planning. Again, I have no idea if people will like it. People might hate it. It might be a big flop, in which case it doesn't happen. But it was just something that is, again, very like special to me. It feels very personal and empowering to me. And I just wanted to share that with other people. But other people might not like it. 
So as things come up in my mind that I'm like, oh, I think people could benefit from this or enjoy this or whatever, I'll make new new things. And, and hopefully maybe something will be right for someone out there. That does sound very cool. And I think you, I mean, you're not going to know if it's successful until you try it at least once, right? Yes. Got to try it. Well, uh, we'll look forward to checking out camp and hopefully our listeners will be able to join at some point in the future. So just to close out, you mentioned you don't sew a ton for yourself, but are you working on any sewing projects for yourself right now? That's so cute. Now, you two are podcasters, so I understand we have to explain things. (laughs) Versus I am a YouTuber where everything is visual. So I just finished making the Verano dress by Christine Haynes Patterns, and I made it out of Workroom Social Rayon, out of a uh, print that was designed by Kelly Ward, and it is – I really like it. I – had someone like read my colors. I don't know if you guys have heard of that. They like look at your skin tone and tell you what colors look good on you. Some kind of silly thing. Um, And I mean, I think everyone should wear whatever colors make them happy. But I did agree with a lot of the things that the person said. And so my dress has a lot of like, um, like warm yellows, kind of like greenish yellows and red and orange, like very warm colors. And then I adapted the dress. It's a, the Verano is a sleeveless sort of like tank top bodice with ruffles down the dress. And I adapted, I drafted these little flounces for the, for the, the tank top portion it just came out of the wash, so it's really wrinkly. I have to <laughs> steam steam it out. But I did just finish that, which was great. And now I probably won't make anything for myself for five months. It's beautiful. I love it's the color. So nice. It's a, I like a good bright color. Thank you, Jennifer, for being on with us today. We had such fun talking with you. Can you remind our listeners where they can find you on the internet? You can find me on the internet, all things workroom social, workroomsocial.com. Instagram is workroom social. YouTube is workroom social. I have like a slightly bizarre company name, perhaps. So, workroom social it is. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Asian Soloist Collective podcast. Next week, we will be talking about imposter syndrome and how it can creep into our lives, sewing and otherwise. If you like our show, please consider supporting us on Coffee. Your financial support helps us with overhead expenses and will allow us to give a little back to our currently all-volunteer team and our guests. And I know that we've kind of talked about it a lot, but our team works so hard to provide you with new content each week. The link to our Coffee page can be found in the show notes on our website and on our Instagram account. That's Asian Solist Collective, one word, at Asian Solist Collective. You can also help us out by spreading the word and telling your friends. We would appreciate it if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All of the links and resources mentioned in today's episode will be in the show notes on our website. That's AsianSolistCollective.com. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with your questions, comments, or even voice messages if you'd like to be featured on a future episode at AsianSolistCollective at gmail.com. This episode was brought to you by your co-hosts, Ada Chen and Nicole Angeline, and we also produced this episode together. This episode was researched by Eileen Leung and edited by Henry Wong and Shailen Joy. 
thank you so much to the other members of our collective who made this week's episode a reality. This is the Asian Sewist Collective Podcast, and we'll see you next week.